entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship is kind of a leap of faith into I have this interest. I have this passion. Let me go see if I can't pursue it. Any person who's married and has a home with a partner knows your family is your personal economy, your well-being as a family, your financial well-being, your mental well-being, your health well-being, all these mm-hmm. things contribute to how how happy everyone is at home. And so we have got to look at this and say, how do we one get women back to the workplace? Happy Friday, everybody. I hope you guys have had a great week. I hope you guys this weekend goes even better. And I'm super excited for you to meet today's guest. But before I do that, I wanted to let you know about a few things. Uh, Obviously, join the newsletter. That's how you can stay up to date, most up to date on everything The Thinking Project. You can join that by going to daltonkjensen.com. If you're in sales, if you're a small business owner or a freelancer and you want to get better at sales, you want to get better at uh, scaling your business without increasing your marketing budget, you guys got to pre-order my sales genius book. You can do that as well on daltonkjensen.com. I did that through Gumroad. So uh, make sure you're following. Make sure you're staying up to date. It means a lot to me when you guys listen and share this with your friends. So please do that. With all that said, today's guest is Liz Georgie, and we had an amazing conversation. She is a badass feminist. She is a great, amazing business owner. We had a great conversation about all the above. She's currently the owner and co-founder of Suna, which is a company built to help business owners brand their business online through videos and photos and gifts. And they're absolutely amazing. They're doing wonderful things. Uh, Liz is doing amazing things in the founders area. Make sure that you follow her on Twitter because she's absolutely amazing to watch and to read on there. So go follow her on Twitter, Liz Georgie. And without further ado, please welcome Liz and enjoy the podcast and please share this with your friends. Thank you so much. Welcome everybody. This is Dalton Jensen and you're tuning into The Thinking Project. Okay, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much, Liz. Thanks for joining me on The Thinking Project. It's really awesome to have you here. I know that we had to reschedule once, but I'm grateful. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, people know me. I don't do any fancy intros. I just, I like to hop right into it. Um, You're the co-founder, or excuse me, co-founder or founder of Suna? Co-founder, co-founder. Co-founder, cool. So co-founder of Suna. Um, Why don't you tell us, start off just like, what Suna does, I mean, I know it's a, it's a helps with marketing and helps with uh, content and things like that. But why don't you tell us like what you got going on? Absolutely. So Suna is solving for the visual layer of the internet. And what we mean by that is every single thing we do online, whether it's buying our lunch from Uber Eats or purchasing a gift for a birthday party on Amazon, or even just booking a car when we're going on vacation involves a photo or visual asset. And yet creating those visual visual assets is exceptionally slow, very expensive, and very hard. And so at Suna, we are creating technology tools that make it possible for any brand to get professional photos and videos entirely online using uh, two key pieces of technology from us. The first is a photo shoot planner where you can actually build a photo shoot and order it from our team. And the second is through our virtual photo shoot experience that allows people to join their photo shoot online in the browser, get real-time feedback Uh, from the photographer and actually collaborate with the crew in real time. 
Customers pay $39 per photo, $93 per video clip, and we deliver the assets in 24 hours. So we believe we're building the fastest and most affordable way to create professional assets online. That's incredible. That is a really quick turnaround time and it's, yeah. and it's very affordable. So how do you, so here's the question I've had, cause I've had a lot of these, um, not, not interviews, but I seen, I've seen a lot of these kind of companies where they're like, yeah, we'll do like your, like I worked with one company who, who did like pitch videos mm. on like virtually. And it was like, okay, you can do that with this company specifically. It was like, you can do that, but you're, you're at the mercy of whatever equipment you're candidate, you know, your candidate or your mm-hmm. customer has, mm-hmm. right? So how do you guys, what is your process around like doing uh, photos and videos for companies, brands? Yeah. Unlike some of the marketplace businesses that exist out there where you're sort of hiring a photographer or creator on one of these platforms and kind of hoping for the best, mm-hmm. Suna has a set menu of assets that we create. So you can actually choose, I need product on white e-commerce photos, or maybe I need something modeled by a hand and, or I need to have a ghost mannequin shot that actually removes the body uh, from the from the clothing, or I want to have a pet model showing off my treats. Uh, all of that is in the Suna platform. And really the oh, idea cool. is that we're unlocking professional quality assets at scale. And so what that means to us is being able to have consistency, being able to have adaptability, and being able to have your brand standards show through in the way that makes sense for your business. So of course, like those marketplace businesses that service, uh, you know, certain types of assets are great, but most businesses are looking for consistency. Most businesses are looking for having their brand standards met again and again. And that's where we really shine. Wow. That's incredible. I like that. And that's a, that's a great thing because a lot of people, um, oh man, I remember when I started like my CBD company and we were trying to get like product video or product shots and product yeah. videos. I mean, it was like, okay, you hire a videographer, a photographer at like 200, 150 bucks an hour, 100 bucks an hour, whatever it is, uh, you know, and then it's like, dang, dude. And we get like four or five and and we're going to burn through those on Instagram and, you know, in like a, a couple of days. Right. So, yeah, um, uh, that's really cool that you're kind of you're kind of innovating in that area and you're and you're really attacking it. How did Suna start? Well, Sooner really came to be because of my first business. I had a business for seven years. I had a video production company that focused on a traditional production. We made the full scale commercial ads where you, you know, rent an entire studio for many thousands of dollars for a day and you bring in a casting crew and you do all the work of you know, traditional production. And I love doing that work, but the truth of the matter is, is that you can only make Sony ads for Wells Fargo and General Mills before you go, <laughs> you know, I think I want to help a smaller business. I think I want to help a brand where we can have a bigger impact. And uh, it actually happened because my co-founder in this endeavor, Haley, was my director of animation at my first business. She and I went on vacation together to Palm Springs in California. And during that trip, we kind of became obsessed with this question of, if we wanted to make professional photo and video accessible to any business at any size, at any scale, how would we go about doing it? And it took us almost a year and a half to build the initial prototype of how Suna works. But that is where we where we spent our time. We just became really interested in how would we make it affordable? How would we make it fast? How would we make it entirely online? And uh, we were really fortunate that we got a prototype put together at the end of 2019 and uh, applied to Techstars. 
And, you know, for those that don't know, Techstars is a technology accelerator program. And because I had never built software before, I'd never built these types of tools before. I wanted to get really smart about how to actually grow a business like this. And so uh, that prototype got us into Techstars Boulder and the rest kind of became a, a fast moving train. It was really evident to us that we had a ton of customers signing up for the wait list. We had a lot of passion about the idea of solving this problem. And so I decided to solve my first company and go all in on Suna and at the end of 2019. And my goodness, has it been quite the experience <laughs> since then. Holy cow. So yeah. right at the end of 2019, you're going to work. I mean, that probably was a was a great opportunity, though, because if you're talking about like all online for small businesses, I mean, you probably didn't foresee it, but it, I mean, how did, how did that, how did no, that I did go? not have a crystal ball at all. Uh, I <laughs> wish I did because I'd be a better business person. But in <laughs> fact, you know, my co-founder and I initially had sort of uh, launched with these retail studio stores where people could drop off their product and shop the prop wall and meet the photographer uh, because we just didn't know if user behavior was going to change enough to accept an online photo shoot experience. You know, at the end of the day, when you're talking about your brand, you want it to be perfect. You want it to be hands-on. And uh, actually the pandemic timing with the way that it did, it really helped our business in a lot of ways. It forced our customers to really try new things. It forced them to think about alternative ways of getting their work done. And uh, it did really benefit us in the end, even though it was a, a massive challenge uh, to figure out how to run the business uh, in the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, the pandemic wasn't. Um, I, I love that you went to small businesses because the pandemic specifically wasn't kind to small businesses, you know. Um, and that's kind of I mean, that's where I, that's like when I started my podcast was like to help small business owners like get out and tell their story and keep going and, you know, give them some encouragement. Um so what made you, I mean, you were talking about earlier, you know, you had your, you had your big video production company, you kind of, you know, you mentioned that you wanted to go to small businesses, what, like, and make an impact, what made you come up with that idea? We are also brought to you guys by Monarch Social. Now, Monarch Social isn't just another social media marketing company because they're going to take care of you on all your digital marketing fronts from SEO to beautifully designed websites to custom videography. And if you want to know more about that, you got to check out the video they did for me uh, on the Thinking Project Facebook group um, because it was absolutely phenomenal. They absolutely killed it. Morgan and his team take really good care of you. They walk you through every step of the process and the communication is on point. So if you need a custom video, a beautifully designed website, if you need uh, custom social media ad campaigns, Monarch Socials, where it's at. They also have a podcast they release every Friday where they bring you a ton of value. So check them out, monarchsocialbrand.com, or you can find them wherever uh, you're on social media because they're probably there too. So check them out, monarchsocialbrand.com and get your digital marketing rolling, like small businesses specifically. I think part of it is just, I wish I had some like grand scheme or some strategy. I think it was more so that the business owners that I knew that I had relationships with, that I was friends with, they were all running, you know, 10 person or smaller teams. They were running pretty small companies. And it struck me as really unfair that a company like my first company could never service them. You know, our average production started at $50,000. You couldn't help, you know, a small business at that price point. And I would always find myself thinking, gosh, I really wish I could help this friend with their cookie company or this friend with their cosmetics company. 
And it just wasn't an option. It wasn't on the table. And so we really did have to look at the technology that was out there. The truth of the matter is, is the reason that professional production is so expensive is because it requires a lot of human labor to plan those productions. If Mm. you wanted to say, for example, you wanted to have, you know, a shot on the side of a mountain here in the Rocky Mountains. Well, to execute that, you'd have to have a producer call land management, get a permit, get the appropriate type of insurance, have, you know, meetings with several types of agencies to make sure that it's going to be safe rent the right equipment, all of these steps, they require a a Mm. tremendous amount of human engagement. What we really wanted to do was create a photo shoot builder that said, okay, listen, we're not going to be able to solve for a hundred percent of photo shoots, but there's probably 75 to 80% of photo shoots that could be handled through the same set of steps. And so if we built a photo shoot builder that kind of helped address those 75 to 80% of photo shoots, I bet we could save all those hours that somebody would have spent on a producer, all those hours that you would have spent trying to get production insurance and really make it affordable for folks. And and that was the insight that drove a lot of what we've built here at Suna. Oh, wow. Yeah, no kidding. And that's, that's what I love. I love that idea of like, and I wish more people would lean into that, you know, like Suna has, like you have. And, and it's the idea that like, you know what, I might not be able to solve for 100%, but I can do 80% really good. And most of the people are going to be really happy with 80%. Like, I feel like business owners try to attack the whole pie Hmm. when like, you know, maybe, maybe that's not what you're supposed to do. You know what I mean? 100%. If you are willing to solve, you know, 70 to 80% of problems exceptionally well, you would Mm -hmm. be surprised how big of a business that is. Uh, it's when you start <laughs> right. saying yes to everyone that you actually degrade the quality of what you do do well. And, you know, in a lot of startup culture, we say do one thing and do it extraordinarily well. And I'm a big believer in that. If you mm. can do one thing extraordinarily well, solve a problem front to back, those customers will be really loyal with you. And it's, by the way, not to say that you can't add more services later, that you can't yeah. solve more problems later. Of course, you're going to do that. You will absolutely do those things. But don't try to do all of it at once because you won't do any one thing exceptionally well. You'll do about 10 things kind of well and and nobody wants that. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like you want to be the master of one trade. Um, what is that old one? It's like jack of all trades, master of none. Yes, exactly. You want to be the opposite? Yeah. It's all about the chapter in your life you're in too. You know, I know a lot of people who certainly have benefited from being a a Jack or Jill of all trades. And I remember there was a chapter in my career where being a Jill of all trades was really, really beneficial. But when you're starting a business, when you are starting a company, uh, zoning in on what are the things that I'm truly the best at? What are the things that I have unique insights Mm -hmm. and abilities around? That's where you're going to find the most opportunity in my view. Yeah. And when you when you talk about just like really honing in on one thing, it, it brought up the question like in my head, what do you think makes it makes it in people's head think it's a good idea? Like what makes you think people think it's a good idea to be like a Jack or Jill of all trades? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. what did we lose? Did we lose like the focusing in on one thing? Well, I think it it starts from a very early age. We go to school and we're trying to get all straight A's instead of looking at some children and saying, well, wow, it's amazing that you're getting A's in math and it's okay that you're getting C pluses in English. We talk about having 
you know, a a 4.0 report card where across every single thing, we must be the best of the best, as opposed to sort of specializing people into what they're actually naturally talented for. And by the way, it's not to say that we shouldn't strive to be good at things that we're maybe not the best at. You know, I am not Mm -hmm. great at finance. I would never say that I'm great at finance, but I spent a great deal of time getting smarter about finance, studying, being wise enough to be able to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. I just also surround myself with people who are brilliant at finance. So it's that balance, right? Of communally inside of a company, you've got to have a mix of people who are really good at a lot of things. And then together, you've got a lot of knowledge. You've got a lot of shared knowledge, but you've also got diversity of knowledge that helps every single department do what they do best. So when we're young, we're sort of taught this like very strange blanket idea of you've got to be good at everything. And I think there's also this interesting dynamic where you know, in modern American workplaces, we've moved away from a certain amount of like, even if you think about going to college for liberal arts, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I went to school for journalism and I specialized in a particular part of journalism, but I also know that a lot of my uh, colleagues in college went to school for this very broad term of communications. Well, you know, that can mean a hundred different things in any given job. That could mean a hundred different things in any different company. And I think sometimes we're afraid to choose because we don't want to choose wrong. And the pressure and the price tag of the modern American college makes it difficult to say, I'm going to do just this one very specific thing. (laughs) And so I, I really hope that as we evolve as a culture. And as we try to find ways to make more college more affordable or try to find paths outside of the traditional four-year universities for folks or for people who Mm -hmm. don't even want to seek higher education, but instead seek exploration of your zones of genius. You know, where can you lean into your talents, lean into the things that you're naturally drawn to, and then surround yourself with other people so that together you're a community of brilliant people doing great work. Yeah. I like that you brought up that idea of school and like a 4.0 report card. I had never thought of it like that. And it makes a lot of sense. You're like, you got to be good at all these things. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I was that, I, by the way, I was that kid. I was like, oh, dude, I'm really good in two or three things, really bad at the other things. Because they, they didn't really, you know, I just didn't care for it. Um, there was nothing wrong with you either. It was just yeah. what you're, it was just what you're naturally drawn to it was naturally what was easy to learn versus what was hard to learn and and we're afraid i think to say oh wow that's that's bad or that's good we just sort of go every student must know everything all the time and you know <laughs> it does a disservice to allowing some students to lean into the things that they're truly exceptional at yeah and i think when you brought up paths outside of a traditional four year university like I am such a huge advocate of that. Number one, like I'm from the Midwest where um, trades are like, I mean, that's like the heartbeat of the, of the U S yeah. in my opinion, you know, you got like, that's manufacturing that's, and, uh, and it was such a shame that like in, in high school that, you know, we live in this city where like I lived in a, in a city where like, we didn't even have a, a, a college. I mean, the closest college was like three and a half hours away. And that was like Iowa. Mm. And, um, Dalton, where did you grow up? I grew up in I grew up in a little town called Keokuk, Iowa. Okay, I'm from Minnesota, yeah. so I understand. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so so you get it. So it's like, yeah. so it's like, dang, um, you know, I love the Midwest. I love the trade option, and I wish there was more of that out there. And I hope you're. I I agree with you. I hope you're. I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope that 
we figure out how to like get more people out or like, and like maybe outside of even like the traditional trade schools. Right. Like, right. Why don't you just I mean, go apprenticeships. Yeah. It's amazing how much photography I, I did not go to school for photography. I went to school <laughs> for broadcast television and there's some similar things, but there's a lot of things that are very different. And also growing up in the Midwest and in a place that was very much an industrial town, you know, I grew up in yeah. a mining town where people took apprenticeships and you learned how to do certain jobs inside that community, inside that business, it was yeah. not uncommon for people to say, I'm going to go do a year apprenticeship in this skill, or I'm going to go, you know, check out welding or something of that nature. And I think also what what's so interesting about entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship is kind of a leap of faith into, I have this interest, I have this passion, let me go see if I can't pursue it. And yeah. it's that desire to go pursue things that we should nurture, that we should say, hey, go be exploratory, go be curious. Because if you do those things, you'll find out very quickly through that process. I like these things. I don't like these things. And you get smarter. Getting smarter is a benefit to everyone, but most (laughs) importantly to yourself. I agree. And it's, it's always great to, to hear that. Like it, more people need that. Like, and on top of all of that, it's cheaper when you do it that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're not spending 50 grand to learn these things. Most Mostly it's just time. And that's okay. Like when you're, you, you know, when you're starting out in a career, like it's okay to, to spend a little bit of time and learn from people and, and go that route. hundred percent. I think about all the time, uh, you know, it's so silly to, to sort of say like, this was my aha moment or whatever. But, you know, I went to school thinking for sure that I was going to be Barbara Walters. That was my life's vision. I wanted to be Barbara Walters. And I remember one of the very first times I sat at a desk and had to read a teleprompter and I was doing the task and I was good at it. I could do it, but I wasn't excited about it. I didn't feel passionately about it. It wasn't something that made my heart on fire. And then I sat down behind an editing station And I started working through clips and putting together a story and I time disappeared. I could spend all day and all night sitting at that editing station working away. And it was because I was just naturally excited about it. I had a lot to learn. I had a lot to develop, but I feel that same way about business. You know, when I started my first company, I lost all sense of time working on the things that needed to get done in the business. And I think that's something we should teach people more often where are the places in your life where you're naturally more curious? Where are the places yeah. in your life where time disappears and you could just keep going forever? Those are the places to lean in and to spend more time. I I, I love that. I've had that exact same experience where you're just like, dude, I, you know, I could do this forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, that's incredible. So what, and, and I guess this might go back to something you said earlier, but I'm just curious if you might have a different answer. But what do you feel like has been the most important thing, uh, for lack of a better word, that may, makes you most successful? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, you're really successful. And I'm just curious, what what uh, what do you think is the biggest contributor to that? I think there's two things that stand out for me as being like key factors in my success. The first is I grew up in a family business. So my family had a canoe outfitter in northern Minnesota. That's how we made our oh. money. And, uh, you know, growing up in that business, my grandfather, my grandmother, my mother, all working in that business together, 
you get to see how important community and helping people is. And really, it's not just about helping customers. It's about helping the people that come and work for you and spend some part of their lives dedicated to what you're building. And I've always sort of really held on to that in my businesses now. I view a lot of my job as being a cultivator of community and really thinking about what are the things that will make this community strong and what are the things that support the community and what are the things that maybe are not as supportive of the community and how can I go ahead and actually notice those things and make them better or solve those problems. And I've, I learned that firsthand from my grandfather is to just be very, very community focused, the way that a company can build a community both internally and externally. Yeah. The other thing I think has really contributed to my success is I'm just, I'm exceptionally curious and I ask a lot of questions. I try not to make decisions, uh, I, I, you know, in a, in a kind of like rash way, but in a very considered way, have I asked every question I need to ask? Have I talked to as many customers as I need to talk to, as I talk to as many employees as I need to talk to, but then once I have all the information, I make a very clear cut decision. (laughs) So, you know, no wishy-washy decisions here. So I really try to be curious and then clear. If you can be curious and then clear, I think you end up really helping your organization and your team move forward in a very uh, honest way that has complete and total buy-in because everyone understands why are we doing this? What is the reason? Uh, Nothing makes employees crazier or more frustrated with you than wishy-washy decision-making It really sets them up to not succeed. And so, you know, that's been something I've held on to. And I think it comes from, you know, again, studying journalism. You never know how things are going to add up in your life, but you're taught to ask questions. You're taught to be curious. You're taught to dig a little deeper than just the surface. And sometimes when you do Mm -hmm. that, the most amazing insights emerge. Yeah, I'm super jealous. I would love to. uh, I've talked to a few people who've gone into the journalism Mm -hmm. uh, world. I would have loved to, I got the wrong degree. I say, that, <laughs> I say that every day. You know, I say that every day. Cause I'm like, I got a degree in accounting and I love it. I love the numbers. I love being able to like help people, but I wish I would have, I've done that, done that a little more. So let me ask you this. Cause I'm curious. How do you know when you've, when you've dug enough into a subject? Like, how do you know when you're like, okay, I've hit a point where I've, I'm either going to like keep, you, you know, I'm either going to ask too many questions before I make a decision or I just need to make it like what, what is the, mm. where's, where's the fork in the road for that? Right. I think it's a combination of things. The first is, have I spoken to everyone that this decision impacts? You oh. know, if you've, if you've missed a person that is impacted by your decision, then you probably haven't asked enough questions or asked enough people. The second thing I would really explore is, have I gotten clear on both the upsides and the downsides of this decision? Uh, it can okay. be very easy to bias yourself and just go ask questions that give you, you know, validation for what you want to do. But if you don't mm-hmm. understand what are all the upsides and what are all the downsides, then you probably haven't asked enough questions. Okay. And then the final thing is, do I feel like if I make this decision and it's wrong, will I regret the decision? And so, you know, or will I feel comfortable apologizing, changing my mind and moving forward? And I often feel that if if I've arrived at, you know what, I feel comfortable with this decision. And if I'm wrong, I'm comfortable apologizing and I'm comfortable changing my mind and going a different direction, then I've probably done the work that I need to do. Holy crap. That was like, that was great. Like when you said that, I was like, yeah, that's it. 
right? Like, are you comfortable? You know, is like, is, are, yeah, are you comfortable? Just, yeah, I'm wrong, dude. Let's, you know, let's change course or, or whatever. Um, that's incredible. When you said that, I was like, holy crap. Yeah, that's it. Well, you've got to be willing to acknowledge that we're humans, right? We're yeah, a bunch yeah. of humans trying to make the best decisions <laughs> that we can. And yeah. my life is full of decisions that I'm proud of and full of decisions that I've had to change. And if you mm. aren't willing to sort of accept that, oh my God, I do have to change my mind on this issue. It's not that there's <laughs> anything wrong with you. It's just that you're yeah. a person. You're a person who did the best you could with what you had. And yeah. we hope that we get it right more times than we get it wrong, obviously. But, you know, I think apologizing and atoning for for maybe mistakes, especially in leadership. You know, leadership is a complicated thing. It's a lot of pressure. It is a great deal of stress, but it's also where a lot of the power comes from. It's where a lot of the direction of an organization is being driven from. So if you're going to be in a seat of leadership, if you're going to say, I want to be a leader, I want to take on this type of responsibility, then you also have to acknowledge the the downside of that responsibility is ownership, owning your mistakes, owning your challenges, owning where you need help. And I think getting comfortable with that ownership is where really great leaders emerge. Those are where the the leaders you remember come from, is not from all their good decisions, but what they did when they've had bad decisions. Yeah. I, yeah. That's a great point. You know, some of the best learning moments in my life from leaders um, were when they were like, yeah, you know, we, we went down this, we caught it quick enough. We need to go back. And, and we, we like, it was a great experience because we all learned together. Like the leader that I had, you know, she was a general manager of our Honda dealership when I worked with Honda. Um, and she was, I mean, she, she made a point to like help all learn together from what we had done. And then we had like all this buy-in, you know what I mean? Like when we figured out that it was the right, you know, that, that she was helping us change course, we were all in behind her. You know what I mean? Like we, we were just like, yep, this is it. Because we know that we know that she's leading us, leading with us and leading us, um, and it was just a really cool experience. Like, I remember that. Like, I'll never forget that. And I used that. I learned from that. And and uh, she created so much buy-in and so much, like, camaraderie that there was nothing. There was no more decision that we would, well, like, we would, ha- we would have never second-guessed her, ever. Well, you know, and especially that's, that's just that, speaks you know? to her integrity, right? Her integrity yeah, yeah. was there. Her leadership was there. <laughs> and isn't that amazing how you go, I, I believe that even if you make the wrong decision, and I'll, you know, ask my dog. Us here, but um, even if you make the wrong decision, I'm still behind you. What yeah, an amazing yeah. experience to have that in your life and in your career. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was great. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was one of the best, uh, one of the best experiences. And I really liked it. I really liked that you brought that up. Um, it's very, very cool. So you started. So you, you know, you had your family business, um, and you. I mean, is that where the entrepreneurial bug came from? Is that, I mean, you went into journalism, you, you wanted to do this thing, but was there, was there always just something back there kind of, kind of itching? Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't conscious of it. It's so strange. Okay. Cause even though I grew up in a family business and I, I yeah. saw it firsthand, I wasn't conscious of my own business interests until much later. It wasn't until I'd sort of explored 
everything I could explore about production that I realized, oh, wow, I could turn this into a business. <laughs> uh, and so that's another great lesson is to, to not ever think that I have to do a, you know, we've really glamorized, like starting a startup in your twenties, oh, yeah. but I think it's, it's okay to say if it doesn't hit you till you're 30, if it doesn't hit you till you're 40, if it doesn't hit yeah. you till you're 65, uh, <laughs> that's okay because it's going to, yeah. it's got to happen when you've got the energy and the interest to do it. And yeah. I just happen to have the energy and the interest to do it when I, I think around my 28th birthday is when I started thinking about it. And then by the time I was 30, I was ready to jump off the cliff and do it. And so it really wasn't as uh, as present for me as I had thought. But you know what? I'm so glad I did it that way because I think I was a lot more mature by the time I got to be a bit older. I'd worked for some different projects. I had made a lot of mistakes already in my career and I knew what kind of boss I wanted to be someday. And so I had a lot of lessons under my belt by that point that I could apply to my business. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, that that's such a cool story. I love that story. And I and I want to I want to change gears now because one of the things that really drew me to your because like I I ran into you on Twitter. Yeah. Um. One of the one of the things that you know, um, and that we were talking about before we we went live, um, was the this idea of, you know, women founders, women in the workplace, and how how they can succeed. And this is something that's like really near and dear to my heart. I have a daughter who's like amazing. You know, she's, she's super fiery. She's, mm -hmm. you know, she's ferocious and I want her to let it all out and I want her to be as big as she can be. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? I, I want her to be cool. And, uh, and I've got a lot of, I got a lot of learning to do. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> so, so how do we, how do we help? Um, I guess, I guess my first question, and maybe you can take us back if we need to go back, but my first question would be, how can we help more women in the workplace and more female founders? Well, part of it is doing what you're doing, right? Is acknowledging that there is so much for men to do to help be part of the solution. I think mm -hmm. we have as a society, as a culture sort of said, well, this is, you know, a women's issue. This is for women to deal with, for women to work with. Uh, but in reality, it's actually in partnership with each other that we're going to solve these problems. When mm -hmm. we as teams say, hey, how do we be more supportive of the working moms in this group? And how does everybody contribute in a way that helps them? That's advancing women in the workplace. Mm -hmm. When we have policies at our companies that you know are really friendly to folks who want to have a family and actually giving men just as much time off as we're giving women when they have a family so that men can be present with their partner and supportive of their partner. We actually say, hey, your work at home, men, is just as important as women's work at home. And we want to make sure that we're representing that and being conscious of that. And so I think that's a tangible thing that companies can do. And as it pertains to entrepreneurship, we really have to deal with the biases that exist in so many different organizations. You know, women, mm -hmm. great. More than 40% of businesses in this country, but they're extremely underbanked. They don't get the same amount of loans, the same amount of financial mm. capital, the same amount of venture capital that male founded businesses get. And so it's really looking around the room and saying, how do I advocate for, you know, if you were working in a bank, how do I advocate for the women founders that are coming in here and making sure that they're not underbanked? How do I yeah. advocate for the people that want to start businesses? Hey, Franny, I love your little <laughs> toy, but come here. Um, my, this is the fun part about working from home is that we're all trying to figure <laughs> out 
how to deal with the fact that our creatures and our, <laughs> our humans are always around. Um, oh yeah. But we have to be advocates for, for each other. And in being advocates for each other, we lift each other up. And I think that's what's oftentimes missed. I can, I can cry from the rooftops all I want that, you know, it's really important for women to be supported. But at the end of the day, it was the male VCs who wrote me a check and believed in me at the same way that they were believing in other male founders. That was the catalyst for change that allowed for SUNY to exist in the world. And so mm-hmm. it's those decisions that we make every single day to support each other that I think can have the cumulative effect of making the world better. Yeah, I, th- I don't think you could have said it any better. I think there's a lot of things that, that, yeah, we can all work on because it is a strange, it is a strange dynamic, right? Like, uh, you know, I remember the first time I really got on board with this obviously was when I had my daughter, but the first time like in the workplace I saw this was actually something for me. Like I was like, Hey, I need to be like, we were having our second child. My wife was pregnant. She had her second child. And, um, yeah. And I went to, I went to work at the time. Um, and I was like, Hey, I got to help my wife. Like it was a pretty, it was a pretty hard after pregnancy. Um, and I was like, I I need to be there for, I need to do all this. And, and they were like, yeah, we don't do like paternity leave. Like you got to be back here. It was like a really high stress sales job. And I was like, this is crazy, man. You know, that's what I was saying. And disappointing because you were trying to contribute to your family in a way that was meaningful. And again, it's this idea that just because women are giving birth doesn't mean that they don't need help with other things right, in life right. because of that experience. They're building family. They're building the population. They're building the next generation. <laughs> and the idea that we can't ask men to be more contributive to that and that we can't yeah. ask employers to be more supportive of that is just silly. We can do that. It's just having yeah. that cultural conversation and getting uncomfortable and saying, listen, um, I don't know what's going on in your home. Maybe I don't need to know. But what I do know is that you're going to be a more dedicated, happy father, husband, employee, and partner mm-hmm. if you can do these things. And so let's make it easy for you to do those things. Yeah. And like, and like, and let's make it easy for like women to feel supported by, by, ev- by everyone, right? Like men and, and other women. I feel like, and and the thing that really got me during that experience that I had was like, I was like, I know that I can do this work from home. Like, I, I know that I can, I know that I don't need to be here 12 hours. You know what I mean? Well, like isn't that, that time- the good thing about the pandemic is we're finally all <laughs> waking up to the fact that, wow, we need more flexibility. <laughs> and by the way, we have all this technology. Let's use it to be more flexible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I know I need to be here. I'm not saying, and and I, that was a crazy, that was the other crazy thing. I wasn't even asking for, a, I didn't feel like I was asking for a lot. I was like, hey, I just need to cut back a little bit. I need to be able to be home a little bit more um, because I know at this particular job and at this particular time in my life, I was like, I don't need to be here 10 hours a day to make the money that I want to to be here for you guys and to help the, in the way that you guys would expect me to be. Um, but you're just you're holding everybody to this archaic. I mean, now it's archaic. At the time, it was like the norm, right? But, right. But I'm glad. the pan- Yeah, that was one of the things that I was like, the pandemic really... I mean, now it's like, we don't need to be here. You know, like we can do this all from home. There's this very funny part of the industrial complex. And it was, it was huge for the country because we were able to move forward in a lot of meaningful ways, but we're holding on to certain remnants and legacies (laughs) of that, that are not as useful to us anymore. And one of those ideas 
is that you check in at the time clock at eight o'clock and then you, the person checks out and you, the worker checks in. And then you're going to clock out at five o'clock and you, the worker are going to check out and you, the person are going to check in. And what we have to realize as a society is no one's compartmentalizing their worlds this much. Mm -hmm. We are all the same person from the time we wake (laughs) up until the time we go to bed and we wake up thinking about work stress, or we might have a family emergency during the work day, or we're considering, you know, our child's struggles at school, or we're thinking about our dog's vet appointment. You (laughs) cannot turn on and turn off worker and human. It just isn't a, it's not a switch that is available. We're a person and people have problems both at work and in life. And we have to have empathy and compassion and room for flexibility with all those realities. Oh, for sure. So, so what are, when you talk about, because we were talking about this before the, before the uh, interview as well about this, this real thing that like women, um, you know, really left the workforce in, in droves. Right. Uh, and and it just blew me away because uh, I just really I because I've also been impacted by women in the workplace, like as my leaders, mm. as people on my team. And it's like those are some really valuable workplace relationships that were like super needed for the team. And yeah. so that kind of like when I read that, you know, I, I heard that I was like, that really kind of hurt. So what do you I mean, like yeah. and I know we were talking about it earlier, like flexibility and stuff like that. But what else, I mean, do you think, like, what else is on your mind when when that gets brought up? Well, just to paint a real picture of how hard this pandemic hit women specifically, uh, 300% increases in domestic violence hotline calls from women who were maybe at Mm. home with a partner and who had a lot of stress and tension and fighting at home because of how much we were forced together in a new way. Uh, at one point, there was uh, up to 12% of women had exited their jobs or taken a step back from a full-time role uh, in order to support the family, in order to support education and schooling and the problems that children were having from not having their routines mm-hmm. in place. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and and financially, some people believe that women have been set back 10 years in overall pay because of the fact that when you took this year and we weren't present the gender dynamics were reinforced of women weren't as present, women weren't seen, women weren't as available, when in reality, we were all just working from home. And so the pay gap has been set back by 10 years, according to some economists. So when you really look at all those factors combined, you start to see a pretty dire picture of, wow, this pandemic has only been you know a year and a half, but it's done a decade's worth of damage to yeah. our economy. And I say our economy, because Mm -hmm. as any person who's married and has a home with a partner knows, your family is your personal economy, your well-being as a family, your financial well-being, your mental well-being, your health well-being, all these Mm -hmm. things contribute to how, how happy everyone is at home. And so we have got to look at this and say, how do we, one, get women back to the workplace through mechanisms of support, both for their children, but also for their families that allow everybody to get back to work in a way that was really productive. And two, how do we ensure that we do it with fair and equitable pay standards? You know, we, President Obama passed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act uh, years and years ago. And yet, because of lack of transparency in wages, lack in transparency in overall compensation packages, 
and some of the ways that people have created pay gaps in our society, uh, that act has not been able to solve those problems as much as as we had hoped. And so employers have to do the just thing. They have to be uh, somewhat self-analytical and saying, are we really doing everything we can to ensure that women are supported and paid fairly in these jobs? Yeah, I that's the one thing because I, I was looking, I had to look for a job during the pandemic. And that was the one thing that really like bugged me. Okay, so let me tell you just a little bit about myself and that this will make sense. I started out in the car business. Like I sold used cars and new cars, right? Right. And uh, the most frustrating thing, like we had to change our processes to tell, to be more transparent with like pricing and things mm. like that. Like that's what we, that's the number one complaint about when you buy a car, you just don't know, right? Right. Um, that's where a lot of like tension comes from. So we, so we did a lot there. We, we tried to help out there, um, like business to consumer. So then, then when I start looking for jobs and I'm like, some of these companies, I'm like, this is like negotiating with a, with a really bad used car dealer. Yeah. I was, I'm like, we, I couldn't get away with what you're doing in the car business. Like, why are we hiding? Like, I just want to know, like, even if you give me a range, right. Cause okay. Experience and stuff like that. I mean, at least that's a start in my opinion, right? Like 40 to 45 K or whatever it is, hundred, 120 K. Um, you couldn't even like, I couldn't even get that. Right. Like this is a big deal. And so when you said lack of transparency, I'm like, yeah, this is worse than negotiating a used car. Well, and it doesn't, who does it serve exactly? It serves the companies, but it doesn't really serve communities. It doesn't serve employees. It doesn't serve for the right people to apply to the right jobs. It actually makes it much harder for them to make sure they're getting the right people. In the city Mm -hmm. of Denver, there actually is a law here that requires you to publicize the pay. And many cities are now doing this because they're saying, listen, we are a city. There's a cost of living in this city. And if you're going to be an employer in this city, you've got to be able to pay people enough to live in this city. And I actually think, you know, as an employer, I think it's been, it's definitely made some people uncomfortable, but I'm happy about it. I think it actually ensures that the right people are applying for jobs. It doesn't stop you from posting a range. You can still post a $20,000 range, but at least Mm -hmm. someone knows, am I in the ballpark of reality? Are we going to be able to get somewhere here? That's helpful to people and it makes it easier to negotiate on all sides. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then you were talking about, I actually remember when Colorado did that and the wall street journal, I read in the wall street journal that a few people that were a few companies that were hiring remote now weren't hiring employers, employees from Colorado to work remote. I was like, holy, I was like, (laughs) you gotta be kidding. That literally just showed your whole hand. That well, it just speaks to it, lack of integrity. I mean, my yeah. God, <laughs> do you want to work for a company that is so scared of being being transparent and being honest that they're yeah. unwilling to hire people in an entire state? It's really sad. Well, I mean, I just go back to this because I sold cars. I just go back to like the fact that if if I didn't tell you a price on a vehicle, right, if I never told you it, you would never buy a car from me. <laughs> right. Like or right. if I was just playing games like, oh, well, you're from, a, you know, you're from a city that that makes me give you the offer first. So oh, right. I, we're not going to do business <laughs> with you. You're, I would be out of business like they would see yes. people would see right through that. That's so when I saw it was just bananas. And then one of the things that I thought was really interesting that that I, I felt like was affecting women in the workplace quite a bit was this um, kind of skew 
for people wanting to come back to the office, like remote workers mm-hmm. not getting paid as much as like in-person workers and not uh, and and not getting like advancement opportunities like maybe an in-person um, worker might get. Right. And so I, I felt like that was a big deal, too, because um, and I'm not saying every company that works remote was doing that is doing this or was doing this. But there were a lot of companies that like, you know, that you were a different, you know, you were like a lower tier, for lack of a better yeah. term, if you were a remote worker. Yeah, we had a at, I, I can speak to how we sort of dealt with this at Suna because we felt we have employer reviews every year like most companies do. And we have compensation review every year like most companies do. And we said as a company, OK, well, we have certain jobs that do require people to be in our warehouses or do require mm-hmm. people to be physically present. And then we have certain jobs where people are working from home. And what we decided to do is just transparently say, here are the standard raises for all different types of workers. And there's not going to be a special type of raise that managers can give to at-home workers versus in-person workers and not creating sort of these, what is competition essentially between two coworkers who feel like Mm -hmm. maybe one is getting a raw end of the deal. Instead, it was just, let's just set a bunch of rules where we say, we're going to base this on performance wherever you have to work based on the tasks that you do at this organization. We value you. And here's what the value is worth. And Mm -hmm. hopefully that's created more, more fairness inside the company. Uh, But also, you know, at the end of the day, people have to do what's right for them. Mm -hmm. They have to look at their lives and they have to say, I can't do a job right now. That's going to put me in a warehouse. I have to do this type of job. Uh, And employers have to be willing to put the safety measures in place that if you are going to have people in person, uh, that you're doing everything you can to keep them safe, to keep them uh, you know, in out of harm's way and make them feel like it's worth it to come to work every day. Th- that's the yeah. key thing. Yeah, I like that. And and I like that you brought up the other side of it, right? Because a lot of people feel like, like me, feel like if you're working, you know, remote, you you might get the short end of the stick. But it's, but it's nice to see, because I agree with you as well. Like I, I'm an entrepreneur, I've owned businesses as well. And there's some things that like, I have to have you here or you can work remote and we try to make that as fair as we can. Um, but it just felt like not, not talking about you. It just felt like with some of these other companies, like especially the people who couldn't, who couldn't publish or who wouldn't hire remote workers from Colorado. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Oh, it was just so frustrating. And so you kind of get me all fired up. I remember my wife, when, when I found out, she was like, you got to stop talking about this. This is bad for your mental health. Well, the next generation of employers, they're going to be held to a different standard of both quality of workplace and quality of experience. And they're going to be held to a different standard of transparency. And I think that's a good thing. If you are employing people in the world, you've got to be fair. You've got to be honest. You cannot just expect everybody to sort of shut up and put up. It's just not it's not the culture we're living in anymore. Right. And I've often said on Twitter and, and people have disagreed with me, but I think, you know, the next generation of exceptional leaders are going to be those that have a high level of integrity and mm-hmm. see it as an imperative to have moral standards inside their organization. And yeah. uh, those are the people that others are going to want to work for. Those are the companies that are going to be successful because their employees are going to be committed and they're going to care. And those are the companies that you're going to remember uh, when you need to make a purchase decision because you'll say, wow, those people didn't treat uh, their employees like garbage during a, a difficult time. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally understand that. Um, and it's true because even now, 
uh, we, you know, even now we're talking about like integrity and stuff like that. Like there's a, there's a generation of employees who just like, we don't have to put up, like I'm in sales. And so it's very easy for me. Uh, and I realize that I have a specific skill set that, that might not translate to maybe someone, someone else's skill set. But in sales specifically for me, it's very easy for me to like, I don't have to take this, you know, a lot of bull crap because I can go sell anything anywhere. Like, you know, your worth <laughs> and you should, you should know your right. worth, right? We should all be so lucky as to know our worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the, because then it becomes a different conversation. Like you, you know, and I feel like that is also a big deal. Like when people realize their worth, like, you know, it is hard. Like I know how hard that is. I said that with a lot of confidence, right? Um, but I, but when I, you know, when I've said that in real life, when I really had to like stick behind that, it was extremely hard. Like I remember getting in a situation where the, my general manager at the time was not a person that I wanted to work with. I, I did, we didn't get along. I didn't like it. And I really had to put, literally had to put my money where my mouth was because I, I quit that job about a month before my baby was due. Good for you. Well, <laughs> uh, you did it. it. But it fine, yeah. And then, and what was amazing about that situation was it was fine. I got a job. I got another job. I, I was able to negotiate some benefits at that other job that helped me get to, you know what I mean? So I, I realized, like I said, I realized that that situation was unique to me. But I know that things like that can happen when you know you're worth and you stick to it. Like it's not going to be hard. But man, I'll tell you what, though, I've never taken BS like that again. That's right. Because like, I know I can it's do it. It's a good note to end on, really, Dalton, because it comes down to um, no one is going to believe in you as much as you. So you have got to really look at yourself and say, do I believe in myself? Where do I believe in myself? And how do I double down on the things that I really am great at in life? Whether that's entrepreneurship, leadership, whatever path you're on, fathering, being a yeah. being a family member, you know, those things. Yeah. Be conscious of yourself and bet on yourself when it really matters. Yeah, well, and and I appreciate that. And like I said, our time's almost up, but I want to give you an opportunity to let people know where to find you and how to get a hold of your services and and uh, contribute how, how they can. Well, thank you so much. I mean, people can check out my business at suna.co. That's S-O-O-N-A.co. And you can follow me on the social medias. I'm at Liz Georgie. Georgie is G-I-O-R-G-I. And of course, uh, I would be doing a very bad job of my job if I didn't give people something for free. So any <laughs> listeners of The Thinking Project, uh, they should use the code Liz, L-I-Z, at checkout to get a free photo on me at Suna. Oh, that's awesome. Holy cow. All right. Well, I'll make sure that that gets in there. And, uh, and thank you so much, Liz. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you so much. Have a great rest of your day.